turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. If you were with us last week, uh, we dealt with one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible, one of the scariest that uh, people have the ability to totally renounce Christianity and uh, walk away from it. This is often called apostasy, not just any everyday kind of sin, I fell into sin, but rather a renunciation after maximum exposure. You could be exposed, exposed, exposed to the real thing, and it never take in your heart. It's scary, but it's true. It's true. Uh, I think Christian parents need to know that. Uh, you, you raise your children, I hope the best to your ability, whatever, but you have no guarantees of what they will do with the faith. It is a personal, individual work of God. Only He can do it. And uh, many a parent lives under guilt and blame all the time about whether their children are saved or not. Proverbs 22, 6 has raised them up in the way they ought to go, and uh, they will not depart from it. That's not talking about salvation necessarily. It's a normal thing that when a boy was mentored by a father, let's say as a shoe cobbler, a farmer, whatever the trade was, they normally turned out as they were trained. But salvation isn't something gained by training. It's gained by sovereign grace at work in the heart of someone. And so you tremble. We want we want to expose people to the gospel, knowing that only God can make it take. Now he's going to change tone. He's going to pick up verse 9, and he gives us a, a kind of a refreshing break here from this most awesome, serious passage. And he says, but by the way, I think better things of you. I, I've seen things in you that accompany salvation. I see things in you that tell me you're saved, and he's comforted by that, and he gives them that comfort. And so I'm going to look at just three characteristics that he saw in them and that he encouraged, which are so basic to real Christianity. What is Christianity? Uh, all the, uh, uh, the war scenes, the baptisms, the offerings, the sacrifices, the Old Testament rituals, all of this, what, is a, what does a real Christian look like? Do we measure them at the offering box? Uh, oh, they're a giver. Well, uh, that's wonderful. We, that ought to be there. But what does he focus on? Three things. You remember what he said in 1 Corinthians, now abideth faith, hope, and charity. Remember? You don't act like you remember. Are you awake? Now abideth. Do you abide? <laughs> Faith, hope, and charity. And he's going to underscore this about them. Three things he sees in them. I remember years ago, uh, one of the uh, Dallas faculty members, Gene Getz, wrote a book called The Measure of Maturity. The Measure of Maturity. And he took... And he based it upon the writings of Paul where the common phrases, he would summarize their faith. Let me just let you look at it. Look at 1 Thessalonians, and you'll see 
And this is what he pivoted off of. And notice what he just lumps together that describes these believers. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the three things he's going to mention here. They had a, a love that worked. They had a steadfast, they did works of faith, and they had a steadfast hope. So let us pick up in verse 9 of Hebrews. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he'll pick up that subject in chapter 7. So, we want to look at three things that characterize these people. First of all, he said, I am convinced of better things about you, for this is what I see. I see a love at work among you that ministers, that works, that helps others, that's engaged. And he says to them, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And he tells them, I hope that you'll remain diligent about this and that you'll continue to keep it up. And then he goes on to tell them, I hope that you'll be diligent, not sluggish about this. You're doing something wonderful. Don't get sluggish about it. And he goes on, but he said, I have seen a love at work among you that's demonstrated and manifested by what you're doing for the saints. You're helping the saints. You're ministering to them. And he uses two words. You're doing a work 
You're doing the work, energy kind of a word. Another word, a word for deacon. You're doing ministry. You're waiting on tables. You're doing physical things, helpful, observable things. God's people are known by a love that will get their hands dirty. It's the kind of love that will wait tables. That was the idea there in Acts 6, the first deacons. They waited tables. They took care of the widows. They, said, they did what was necessary for it to have a ministry. They removed all impartiality among the widows. It, it was a love that got active. I'm always afraid of people who say, I love you in my heart, and that's as far as it's going. What if I'm dying in your midst? What if I'm naked? What if I'm hungry, according to 1 John? Do you have the kind of love that would clothe me? Do you have the kind of love that would feed me? Or are you like the uh, story of the Good Samaritan, that the most religious people in the narrative, uh, the priest and the Levite, they walk by on the other side. They must not be dirtied especially in a racial context, you can't get dirty with a Samaritan or with somebody else. We can't get involved. We're too busy saying our prayers to help. We're too busy being religious to get involved in somebody broken down. We don't need rescue missions. Let somebody else do it. No. The love that works in a person's heart will break out doing whatever it takes. You know what? I, I thank God I worked out, grew up in a culture of Christianity. You didn't pray about it. You did something. You, you prayed while you worked. That almost sounded like a chorus, huh? Uh, Moody was on a ship one time that caught fire, and someone said, Mr. Moody, please pray. He said, I will, but hand me a bucket. Getting involved. Now, the, the, the tragedy, what often happens is we get so consumed in the work that we've quit the love, the motivation drops out, and we're just doing the work, and we're agitated, we're upset. Why doesn't someone help us? Where's the rest of them? He said, it was a love that broke out in doing work. And that's the battle, to keep that balance in our heart that if I give my body to be burned, it won't profit anything if the motivation isn't love. You can do a whole lot of good things for folks that you don't even like. Some people get paid to do that. That's why, don't you notice, it's hard to get a clerk that smiles in some places. Now, how do you treat them when they do smile? Sometimes they may have been waiting on Christians too much who never tip. And so the rudeness given to them has wiped away the smile. But you can get where service is nothing but uh, labor, labor. There's no love involved in it. Now, to have a love that springs out with these deeds, can you love me and not do something for me? I said, well, I think I can. I love the whole world, but good. What are you doing? I'm watching uh, Fox News, seeing everything that's wrong with this world. 
Are you involved on any level? I mean, on what level? I can't help the whole world. I can only help those in my world, those around me. And so he says, I am convinced you are not of those that are turning back. I'm convinced you're not of those who just sit in church, take in sermons, spit them out, that you've been enlightened, you've tasted of things to come, you've had all this exposure, and in the end you say, crucify him, I don't want it, but I've seen something different in you. And what I've seen is a love that is actively engaged in ministering to people's needs of various sorts. You know, needs. Uh, maybe you need to have your eyes examined. We're loaded with needs. I mean, people are lonely. Uh, people are needy. People are fighting. In this church right now, the people fighting cancer, needing meals, needing an encouragement card. I mean, we've got a lot of sick people in this church now fighting for their lives. We've got ministry opportunities. We fan it, we fan it. And uh, sometimes I ask myself, how much begging do you do? How much recruiting do you do? When do they come to us and say, I must do something. Point me to a place where I can do something. Well, well, here's a broom. I had a man used to bug me all the time, very type A. He was triple A. And uh, uh, huh. Uh, uh, just got saved, led him to the Lord, and he wanted to get his hands on everything, and he wanted to do, and he's just a young believer, and he, he came to me, I, I want to do something, and, and that was a wonderful thing about him, truly. But we didn't, he was a young believer. We didn't know where to put him. I said, you know what? I'll start at the back door of this church and just look for a kid who has shoes that are worn out and start there. What? I said, start looking for kids with worn-out shoes and buy them some shoes. Well, that's not ministry. I think it is. If I was that kid, I'd think it was ministry. Hilltop Assembly, when I grew up as a boy, I was on crutches, and I lived in South Richmond, south of Cutting, south of uh, uh, Hoffman, where Hoffman Freeway is, we live right next to the Ford plant, practically, in the projects. And it would flood if you've ever been a Richmonder long. If you remember the 50s, it flooded a lot. We had all kinds of rain, and all the uh, drainage system of Richmond went that way. So the projects would flood quite frequently. I remember, and, and the granddaughter of the man that used to pick me up in crutches and braces in a Sunday school bus and wade out there in his boots, go to the projects, pick up this boy, and get him in a Sunday school bus. Uh, that man's granddaughter married one of the guys in our church. And one day she came to me, Danielle Sanchez. She said, my grandfather says he remembered picking you up as a crippled boy and taking you to Sunday school. Do you think that man will have any reward in heaven? But I've seen some saints they're overexposed and underdeveloped. They're like a bad film. Uh, they're, uh, they're great on exercise. They watch, rather, they're great on diet. They watch everything they eat, but they're totally under-exercised. They got knowledge, big head, small heart, and whole hands. And he said, I see you guys ministering to the saints. 
And I would say, if you want to get over miserable Christianity, find something to do in the name of Jesus for others. Uh, is it hard to write an encouragement card? Uh, th does anyone uh, teach your children? Does anyone watch over your children in the nursery? Uh, I, one of our Sunday school teachers had faint if they got a thank you note from you and said, I thank God he put you there to help shape my child. The one that's been driving me crazy at home. Uh, what about, do you think we ought to do anything for widows or forget about them? We want to be a young church. No, no, I don't. I just want to be the church. I ain't picking the age. There's ministry all over. And I would know your Christianity was authentic, according to this writer, if I saw you ministering to the saints. And he says something that's overwhelming. God does not forget what you do for his people. He doesn't forget it. Look what it says. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name by serving the saints and you still do it. If I wanted something, if I needed money in this church, there's certain people I would ask for it because I believe if they had it and can do it, they would, I mean, I'm talking about for the cause of Christ, they would write a check if they could. And I've seen them do it time and time again. Absolutely. Uh, there's people that if we need something to get done, you know, Gene Schnabel and Gaylene, Gene is an elder. He, he is not a donut man. Because that was going by the way, and so many of you enjoyed it and loved it. Just a cup of coffee to keep you spiritual. And uh, where we could stand you for the morning service. Uh, he, just, he and Galen just grabbed it, and then, of course, Catherine jumped in. The, guess what? Uh, usually deacons, not, you don't even need a deacon. You don't need to be at church. You don't have to have big character to just make coffee and put out. The, they've been doing it for years. You know why? Get, show me something to do. What needs to be done? I'm not going to pray about it. Show me the need. The need. You got me. Some of you just walk in, walk out, walk in, and this church could go to pot, and it would never be changed by you because you're a taker, not a giver. And we wouldn't know you're a Christian by that, that attitude. He says here, I know I could see the love of God working among you. You're, you're helping them. Listen, let, we'll just move from this. This is too convicting. That the model of, you know, when you say this, look in our language. I love you. Watch this now. Wait, wait. You just said you loved your pet turtle. You moved up to your dog. You included your grandma. You, you said you love mom. And now you're saying you love me. What, in what way do you love me any different than the turtle? Love in the English language has absolutely no meaning. We don't know what it means. I like you. Uh, I love you, baby. No, you don't. You're lusting for me. You're trying to get me to go to bed with you, but you don't love me. You're going to drop me after tonight. And if I got sick, if I got pregnant, you wouldn't know my name but you just said you love me. Am I telling the truth? That's why Hollywood makes marriages about one night, or rather films about one night stands. They make no movies about marriages. 
Because Hollywood specializes in one-night stands. The wine, the ambiance, the mood, the, the, the. Could you give us a film of a 30-year marriage? Oh, man, we don't know what that is. You mean you'd be with the same woman 30 years? Yeah. Yeah. You, you could have, man, that, that's putting up with a whole lot. Yeah, that's right. It sure is. And she's been putting up with a whole lot. Make me a movie, Hollywood, on that. You don't know a thing about it. You don't know anything about a love that will sacrifice for a woman dying of cancer and you won't bail out on her. That's love. This is love that sacrifices. God so loved that he lusted for us. No, he so loved that he sacrificed his best for us. That's God's love. I love you. I value. I put an estimation on you that you're worth sacrificing for. Now, I want to tell you, that hits the root of my selfishness, my self-centeredness, my conceit. But, oh, I don't know if I love like that. I don't even know if I want to. I might get dirty. I might get crucified. There's no safe way to love. If you dare love, you, you, you're set up to get hurt. I've got relationships. I've had many of them that I just don't know whether to go any further because I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. I don't think it's that stable. I don't want to invest much more because I'm waiting for them to walk out. And so we all become very uh, this way in relationships. How are you? How are you? And, and so we become God's frozen few. We're, we're all right. Am I dancing? Yes, I am. And so like that. But look, it amazes me. What was the last thing Christ did before he died? He stooped and washed their feet. And John 13, 1 said the reason he did it, he wanted to show them the full extent of his love. I'm willing to stoop, serve you, and then die for you. I see this kind of love working in you people. I believe that you know God. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you all are doctrinally on the same page. I was born again among people that don't hardly believe half the stuff I teach around here, and they're just as saved as any of you smart Alex. Just as saved. You don't get saved based on IQ. He saves children. We all don't have to say it the same way. But they loved each other. And that's how I knew it. It was a contagious Christianity. It was the real thing. I've gained more knowledge, but sometimes I don't know if my heart has kept up with what my knowledge is. I wish my heart would enlarge. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul said something heartbreaking. In the Greek, he says this to the Corinthians. It is a strain for you to love me since you have no room in your heart. It literally is a Greek word for I give you cramps. Cramps is I'm tight. There's no room to move. He said, it's cramping you to love me. But it doesn't cramp me to love you, for God has enlarged my heart. I had a brother one time tell me, I have found it difficult to love you, for I have closed my heart to you. I would say to you, don't lose your first love. 
if you quit loving. Who cares if you've got the knowledge of angels, could talk in the tongues of men and angels, and you know all mysteries. Who cares? God won me to himself, not by a knowledge contest, but loving me enough to die for me. That's how I know God loves me. Willing to die for me. And this world, he said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples. And the reason they don't want to come to our churches, the reason they don't want to know us, they find us judgmental, critical, uh, do nothing, and a shrunken heart. God forbid that we think that's what God does. God changes the heart, gives us a heart to love people. What a marvelous thing. We're known when we love. Just love like him, and God won't forget it. When you've done anything for his people, why? Jesus said, you fed me. Uh, you visited me in prison. And they say to him in Matthew 25, when did we ever see you this way? He said, when you were good to the least of these, when you visited the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Oh, that we can get a view of how God views people. But we're so selective in who we're going to give our love to. God was just willing to love anyone. What a challenge. He goes on now, and he tells him in verse 12, I want you to imitate those who have lived by faith. For God's people are known by uh, their faith, uh, a faith that trusts God, a faith in all circumstances. And, and that's the heart. My just one shall live by faith. Now, what does it mean to live by faith? Basically, it's an attitude, I will trust God no matter what. I will trust, well, when you say, I trust God, that's nice, wherever he is, but God uh, has made it a little bit simpler for us. He's brought it down. I have spoken, I've given my word, and those who trust me trust what I say. And they seek to obey what I say. They seek to be um, governed by what I say. So people of faith are the people of a book, uh, the people of an attitude of trusting God. And he goes on to say the story of Abraham. Imitate someone like Abraham. What about Abraham? God calls him in Genesis 12. He's a moon worshiper. He's not even looking for God. He doesn't know the true God. He, he's a pagan. He, he's an idol worshiper. Down there, and God in sovereign grace just calls him out, leave your home, go to a land I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all nations through you, Abraham. Just do what I say. Well, he goes. He winds up in chapter 15. God makes this uh, covenant with him, puts him to sleep. And uh, while he's there, he makes this covenant in which he says, I'm going to give you a promised son. Eliezer isn't going to be your heir, but I've got a promised son. And Sarah's laughing at chapter 18. God's telling me as an old woman past childbearing that I'm going to be the mother of a nation. And she busts out laughing. You've got to be kidding. God didn't like it too much. And uh, uh, you know what they named Isaac? Laughter. He's a laugh. 
is a miracle. So, he gets this promise in Genesis 12. 25 years later, God gives him the boy, and in the meantime, he helped God out and had a son by Hagar. Sarah's idea, you need to go in and help God out. Well, guess what? He fathered something that's been a thorn in their side to this day, all the Arab nations, because she's going to help out God. They got nervous waiting on God because they had to wait 25 years. And then they get this boy, Isaac. Isaac grows up probably the age of 12, 13. Go sacrifice your son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. They go there. He lifts the knife. He's ready to kill the boy. God intervenes. At that time, God says, I have made you a promise, but now I'm going to make an oath by my name. I'm going to add to that my oath on top of my promise that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to do exactly what I said. I mean, double, double, I'm going to do it. And he said that Abraham for 25 years waited on God, waited on God until he saw God fulfill the promise, and he still waited. By the time he died, he never did see the Messiah that God promised. Why, you idiot. No, 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 no. Just because it doesn't happen in your lifetime. You know, I've been believing in the coming of the Lord uh, even from before I was saved. How many of you believe Jesus would come, could come any moment for at least 50 years? Why, you idiots? No, 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 no. We're closer than when we began. I want to see in one way or the other. Subway or airmail? I want to see. But he is coming. He is coming. Set all the dates you want. Dates have always, they've missed everything. But he's coming. And here's Abraham. I can imagine the neighbor said, hey, you're going to have a house full of slaves. All you've got is Eliezer. No, no. I've been promised a promised son. By who? See her? This beautiful woman called Sarah. Can you imagine? A woman, 75, 78, said, you know, you might need to see a gynecologist. Uh, they haven't been having too many babies lately. Are you going to get uh, some infertilization help? What are you going to do, Abraham? I'm going to just believe what God said he can do. And he commends them, and he's calling them back. Keep trusting God in the midst of all this pain. Keep waiting on God. And I think the hardest part probably of faith living is waiting on God's timing. Uh, God's going to do it. I want to give you a promise, son. Well, a promise means now. And it didn't work out that way. And uh, he waited patiently because he said, God cannot lie. He made an oath. I'll take him at his word. And the biggest test in your life is, can you keep trusting God's Word when things are contrary, when you're in all kinds of tests? Uh, and that's the test. My just ones, they walk by an attitude of faith our, our whole life. 
Then he goes on finally and he says, they're known by having hope. He said in verse 18 that we would have refuge in the God that we are holding fast to, that we have hope. And this hope is like an anchor to our soul. We have this assured and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What is hope? Uh, I like what I heard someone say, hope is simply faith in the future. I, I've got hope that God will do what he said in the future that gives me hope. Uh, I like to think of it as being positive expectation about future things. And uh, as we think about hope, I read an article by Dr. Armin Nikolai, Jr., professor of psychiatry at Harvard, Harvard Medical School. And he said today, there are now uh, 11 million patients in the United States suffering from depression and needing treatment. Over 250,000 of these patients have attempted suicide. Uh, if you know anything about the youth cut culture, cutting uh, suicidal attempts is a youthful phenomenon. Uh, they deal with it in our youth group, girls, and get, not guys as much as girls, cutting themselves, cutting themselves, despair. And he said that what he sees, of all things, that in the explosive increase in depression and hopelessness, hopelessness within our society is that all spiritual resources, uh, interesting enough, seem to have been undercut. He said, historians and social scientists tell us that we have fewer spiritual resources to draw from than at any time in Western cultural history. Uh, spiritual roots have been cut off and forsaken. Many young people feel their culture failed to provide an answer to the questions of purpose, meaning, destiny. We've become the age of despair. There's a great spiritual vacuum, and no one has any answer to the crises of meaning. Therefore, we have become a culture of angst, and we've become a culture of hopelessness, depression, despair, and we've cut all of our moorings for, from anything that says there's spiritual help. Where do you get hope when you're depressed? Where do you get hope if you're a 15-year-old today and you don't know what's going to happen in the world? Your mom and dad are fussing every night and headed for a divorce. Uh, you may be popping pills already and you've all, you know you're flunking two classes, and you, they meet you, where would you send them for hope? We just had a boy, a young man in our church, commit suicide that grew up in this church. Went through Berean High School. Went through our youth group. Grew up in Arwana. Despair and jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge was his only answer. Having prayed with his mother and dad the night before, the night before he jumped. Asked his mother to pray over him that night, and she did. Hopelessness, 
And here are these believers suffering for their faith, being uh, persecuted, suffering alienation from their community. Their houses, as you go to chapter 10, will be destroyed. Their businesses, you're taking my means of income, my neighborhood, uh, saying that I'm no longer Jew because I've accepted Messiah. Where do I go? And he says, you have been clinging to Christ who has become your hope and like an anchor in the midst of a storm for our hope goes right into the third heaven. It's tied to heavenly resources and it's right where Christ who is ministering as our high priest is, our hope comes from above. Our hope is anchored in God Nothing in this world. What can you ensure in your world that will guarantee you you won't die of bad health? You won't die broke. You won't die widowed. You won't. How can you guarantee your future? Insure yourself to the hilt, and you can't guarantee how you're going to go out. There's only one place you can get a promissory note of what your future will be, and it will be for sure. And it's the promises of God about your future. You will be resurrected. You will be with Christ when you die. You will get a brand new body. You will reign with Christ someday. You will escape divine judgment. On and on and on. Sure promises that even though Luther said, my body, they may burn. They may destroy this, but I stay with Jesus. You can't do any more to me after you burn me up. I still have a future. My future is I will seek Christ. I will be with Christ. I will reign with Christ. I will spend eternity with Christ. I have a hope beyond this life, beyond pay bonuses, beyond dinners, beyond sex, beyond movies. I've got something that goes beyond everything this life offers. Is anchored in Christ because there is more to life than this life. And uh, when you don't know the future, I would say as an unsaved boy in a Christian home, the thing that scared me the most about being alive is I had no hope and I had no excuse. I just didn't want to think the hope was found in Christ. I wanted hope in this life. And in this life, uh, we were facing world war, Vietnam, drugs. I'm in the Bay Area. Nothing looked like it was getting better. Everything's getting worse, 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 worse. And guess what? It has, and it will, and it will get worse. Watch Fox News all you want. They'll never tell you how it's going to get better. They can tell you how bad it is, but they don't know how to cure it. The cure is put your faith in Christ who makes your future certain, and you don't need to pop a pill. You need Christ. If you're here without hope, if you're here in depression, I've got good news for you. Christ can lift your head up. He can give you the assurance of your future. He can assure you that you become a child of God, that you'll have eternal life, and that you won't face judgment, but you'll face a wonderful father because you accepted his son. What a great future you have if you just take Christ. 
Take Christ, and your future will forever be changed. Our Father, thank you for the simplicity of what a Christian really is. Someone who loves enough to get involved in showing it. Someone who believes a God that cannot lie. The virtue is not in us, Lord, but in you. We have found the only one that will never, never, never lie to us. And the only one who can guarantee our future. And as promised, you have a future with me. Cast your anchor with me. Cast your soul on me, and I'll keep you from being crashed by the storms of life. Your anchor holds within the veil. May we cling to him until we see him. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Get ready for Easter. It's coming. Ha, <laughs> ha,